Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Canadian Real Estate Forum as part of our forum series. Our guest today is one of the chairs of the forum. We're excited to have him here. It's Gary Whitelaw, CEO of Bentall Green Oak. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks, Adam. And Aaron, nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. As everybody knows, we always start these conversations with just kind of a history of how you got into real estate and how you ended up where you are today. So why don't you give us the Coles notes of, of where you've been and what experience you, you've occurred to give you the knowledge you have today. Absolutely. And I, I will make it the Coles notes. As a kid, I suppose, like so many young guys, I love playing with Lego and building things, making things. And in school, I was kind of a math guy and so started into engineering, civil engineering at McGill. And Continued in that, but also broadened a little bit into architecture and ended up getting a degree in architecture with a minor in civil engineering throughout that period. And actually, my first six or seven years working was as an architect. And I enjoyed that very much. You were obviously contributing in a big way to the built form, to physical structures. But it became apparent relatively early on that we were executing other people's vision, that a lot of people had made decisions by the time they hired an architect about what kind of building it was going to be and what the economics would be associated with that. So at that point, I got some very good advice from my father-in-law to go back and get an MBA and, and really understand about the economics of business and specifically about real estate, investment, construction, et cetera. Spent several years in the development and construction industry, leasing, operating, building, really kind of getting dirt under your fingernails and learning about how a building comes together. And then at that point, began to morph into real estate investment. So more of an owner, developer, builder of buildings as opposed to the technical stuff and enjoyed the combination of the economic, the marketing, the people, the technical. So it's in some ways, I joke with my kids, it's like going from being a playwright or an actor to ultimately becoming a director, producer of a film. It's the holistic approach that I find so interesting. And so what firms were you at at this point? Was this through Bentall? What did the transitions look like? Yeah, I worked for a private company, actually my wife's family company for many years, Mollenhauer Construction, that was a second generation construction company active across Canada and in the southern U.S. Then moved to a company called Gentra, which was the bad bank when Confederation Life and Royal Trust and during the SNL crisis when so many of the trust companies failed. And we really became an arm of what is now Brookfield and enjoyed that experience very much. That was really my first introduction to the workout process and what happens when everything in your pro forma doesn't go right. That was a, a great period of learning for so many people in the, in the early 90s. Tough time, but great lessons learned about how to insulate your projects and be prudent. From there, I moved over to what was Bell Canada's real estate arm called Nexacore. Paul Campbell was the CEO and we were good friends. He attracted me to come in as COO of that organization. Worked there for a couple of years as we restructured the business and we were either going to do an IPO of that real estate arm, which had about 25 million square feet of office space, or we were going to do a strategic sale. And we ran the two processes in parallel. Ultimately, the strategic sale yielded more proceeds for Bell Canada. We went that route and that's when Mark Shaparsky from Bentall knocked on my door they had a subsidiary named Penreal, wanted someone to come in as a new CEO of that. I was fortunate enough to get the job, enjoyed that very much. And a few years later, Bentall, which had been a public company, was taken private by the Case Today Poe. 
and Penreal really became the go-forward entity as a real estate investment manager for pension funds, insurance companies, and others. And that was around 2000, 2001. And that really sowed the seeds for the next chapter, which became Bentall Capital and then Bentall Kennedy and now Bentall Green Oak. There's been a few iterations. Back in 2009, 10, I was working at Collier's and we had a couple of Bentall listings then in the airport area here in Toronto. And yeah, it would have been, I think, just Bentall then, maybe Bentall Kennedy at that point. 2009, we would have just in fact, 2010, we became Bentall Kennedy. Okay. We owned two-thirds of Kennedy at the time, but we hadn't changed the name. So, okay, yeah. 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 yeah, so it was in the office, you know, once a month for updates. And, yeah, and so how did the Green Oak, I don't know if it was an acquisition merger, how did it classify it, but what, how did that happen? Well, one of the things we've tried to do along the way is recognize the industry trends and in particular where our clients were heading and try to anticipate that direction and offer them services and strategies that met their needs. And what became apparent, I guess, about four or five years ago was that as real estate and real assets, generally infrastructure, became a bigger and bigger part of the institutional investors' portfolio, and as they went global, they couldn't manage an infinite number of relationships around the globe. So there was a real marked trend towards consolidation that was happening. Over the last five years, for example, the top 10 global real estate managers have garnered 53% of the total capital raised. You know, and that's the top 10 out of, call it, three, 400. So the Blackstones, the Brookfields, the PGMs of the world are getting a bigger and bigger piece of the pie. And I think part of the reason for that is that they have a broader range of strategies, some of which are higher risk, higher return if they work out, others of which are lower risk, more like a fixed income kind of product. You've got real estate credit, you've got real estate equity, you've got development-oriented vehicles, and then you've got the different geographies, of course. So if you could find yourself in a position where you could offer an array, a suite of products to a large global investor, you know, once they've developed a relationship with you, their inclination, if you're performing well for them, is to stay with you. But you've got to have different things to offer as their strategy changes and as cycles mature. So it was really that underlying trend that drove us with Sun Life's help, and we should maybe talk a little bit about that stage as well at some point, Sure. with Sun Life's help to look for a complementary platform or a series of complementary bolt-ons that would enable us to diversify geographically and to diversify by product type. And as we got to know Green Oak, well, because of some mutual friends and one of my senior colleagues that had worked with them for many years, we realized it was like two puzzle pieces coming together. There was almost no overlap, and we really did have, we could complete that suite of offerings as one sure. company in a way that it would take decades for us individually sure. to get there. Let's go to the ownership route first and talk about the relationship with Sun Life and how that happened. Yeah, I guess around 2014, that trend that I just described was becoming more and more apparent. We realized that we had to diversify. That required capital to launch new products, to build a global infrastructure, et cetera. And we were one-third owned by management, two-thirds owned by two very successful institutional investors, BCIMC, now BMI, and CalPERS. But the management partners really didn't have the capital to invest in the business and keep pace with the change to the degree necessary to really diversify. So we had an excellent board. There was a lot of discussion amongst the board and shareholders. Conclusion we came to in late 14 was that we should go through a strategic process and look for a partner that really understood the asset class well, for whom it was a big part of their business, 
but saw us as a bona fide asset management platform. And with their balance sheet, they would help us grow. We went through a rather short and targeted process. And Sunlight, so it wasn't an RFP? Did you kind of pick up the phone? You knew who you were targeting? You had three or four names in mind? and We, we, had, that we like? had five names in mind and we narrowed it second round to three. And we did have an investment banker work with us on that. So we wouldn't lose focus on the day job. But we had a very positive and lengthy relationship with Sun Life. We had been one of their largest service providers. We managed their Canadian real estate portfolio for 11 years before the combination. So we had come to know the team and the culture very well and vice versa. And that made the decision much easier. Much easier. Relationships seem to guide the instinct often, right? Before we get on to kind of where Bentall is today, I'm curious, The you talked about your clients. Who are your clients? How do they, de- I guess they're deploying capital through you. Is that through funds? What does that mechanism look like? Yeah, it's a good question. And we have a range of strategies and a range of products that go with that. So in total, Bentall Green Oak has about 725 institutional clients. We have some ultra high net worth or high net worth, but frankly, that part of the business isn't that well developed and it is a growth area for us. So we have institutional clients from around the world, literally all corners of the world, Asia, Middle East, Europe, Canada, and the US. And so can you talk maybe just about the symmetry or the way that the Green Oak Bentall relationship, what did Green Oak clientele look like versus Bentall's and why was it such a good fit? Well, we had about seven overlapping clients, most of whom interestingly were Canadian, a couple were US, and they invested in Green Oak for value add products typically. So They looked at it more as a form of private equity with less reliance on income, mostly about capital gains through a closed-end fund vehicle over four or five years, whereas the majority of our clients viewed real estate as a higher-yielding form of fixed income, if you will. So this was core, sometimes core plus, but predominantly core products with very stable cash flows, very predictable rent roll and income, and obviously a considerable spread over what they would be getting in an investment-grade fixed income instrument. So what we heard from those clients that knew us both is you do different things, but you're very similar in your approach to us as a client. And we thought that was fundamentally important. Someone that realized that at the end of the day, our purpose was to invest people's life savings and not only preserve that capital, but generate the predictable return they were looking for. So that, I think, was kind of the glue that brought us together was we did different things, but we did them the same way. Under the umbrella of preservation of capital, any growing pains or you know, shifting the mentality from safe real estate to opportunistic real estate? Well, another good question. I mean, I'd say there's two answers to that. One is we came to a handshake and a letter of intent very quickly, a matter of two months. And it was pretty intense two months, but very quickly. What took another 18 months was to work out how the governance would work post-closing. Governance and org charts, who would do what, how we would make decisions, what our new product suite would be, and how we would try to make one plus one equal three. And we actually spent months developing a five-year operating plan that would effectively become our business plan the day after closing. And we spent a lot of time as between the founders of Green Oak and myself and a couple of others, and as between us and Sun Life to make sure that we were all on the same page on this. So I think that has really minimized the growing pains because so much was hammered out. And, you know, there were some tough discussions. There were some things where initially we didn't see it the same way, but as we talked it through, we came to, I think, a very constructive accommodation. And that also gave us some faith 
that post-closing, as we saw things a little differently, inevitably you do, we'd be able to land on sensible compromises and solutions. So you talk about five-year business plan. What is it? Well, what's the secret sauce? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell us everything. <laughs> Part of it is to continue with the series of funds that we each have now. So we will continue to grow organically with our core funds in both debt and equity in North America. They will continue to offer the value-add series. So we have just closed about six months ago the U.S. Value-Add 3 fund, where we've had first and second close in Asia 3 and Europe 3. Can you disclose the size of those? What were the size of that, the, that fund? Um, the first one, U.S., is 1.5 billion U.S. equity with uh, debt capability above that. Asia 3 will, in all, I'm quite confident, hit its 1.5 billion hard cap as well. And Europe 3, I would say, would be between 1.3 and 1.4. So roughly the same word magnitude. And very much larger, almost twice the size of the funds in the two series. So those three series funds, now they broken out. Let's use 1.5. That's, that's a consistent number. Are they broken out into different, like core, core plus, opportunistic, development? Those are all value-added. Those are all just value-added. Interesting. Yeah. But to your question about what comes next. So we see a real opportunity in two areas in particular. One is in the core plus space that you know sits between core and value-added with less of a reliance on appreciation and capital gains that a value-add fund would have, a bigger component of income, but with a bit more leverage. And so let's call it current returns in the 6-7% range, a total return net to investors in that 8-11% to range. So kind of comfortably midway between core and value-added. A little bit more octane through leverage and active asset management than core, but not as much leverage, not as much risk as value added. In the market, are you seeing those numbers shift? Are you seeing because of the availability of capital that what you know investors were, they used to be looking for a sort of a 9% sort of all in return are now saying, okay, you know what, I'll accept seven or eight just because it is just so liquid out there? Well, it's partly that, but also everything's keyed off essentially the fixed income return. So for most of my career, investors have wanted a 250, 300 basis point spread over investment grade bonds. So as bond yields have trended down, people are accepting, they still want the same spread. Maybe they want a little bit more spread just to be on the safe side with how low absolute returns have come. But if fixed income is yielding two and a half, six percent looks pretty good, even if that asset might have sold for an eight percent a couple of years ago. So I think that's driving it more than just the availability of capital. I think it's where people will accept a return. And once you see that spread narrow to 100 basis points or less, I think that's when people get really jittery. Right. These funds are quite large. Do you anticipate any frustration with trying to deploy that much capital? I know it's pretty competitive out there. And we, we hear from other groups that trying to do larger transactions can be frustrating in the Canadian market, trying to put out that much money. Yeah. You know, you just have to be very patient. And even within our core funds, the way we've traditionally added alpha is not to move to secondary markets or secondary tertiary quality assets, but it's to have a build-to-core component within that core fund where we will develop a top-quality AA, AAA office building, residential tower, industrial park, and not flip it on sale, but keep it within the fund. So that way, you've got newer and newer assets in your fund, and you're capturing that merchant developer profit for the investors in the fund. Do you transfer between funds? Would you use sort of a opportunistic fund, stabilize the asset, and then transfer it to a core or core plus fund? Almost never. Okay. Uh, it's tricky. You know, I think the fund that's selling is wondering whether you have optimized value. The fund that's buying is 
wondering the same thing. So there have been rare occasions where we saw a strong rationale for doing that, and we put an independent fiduciary in place that would oversee the transaction. The investors are challenging you, like, well, why are you doing this, right? Interesting. On the construction front, you do have a couple of very large projects on the go right now. Can we talk about uh, a couple of those? Sure. I mean, the one I'm thinking of is the large apartment building you're working on just uh, the west side of downtown Toronto. Yes, the Novus project. Apartment and condos, is that correct? No condos. Just no, apartments. No, we're just purpose-built okay. rental, but we have about 125,000 square feet of commercial with a large grocery store and then uh, ancillary retail. So mixed-use retail serving that Liberty Village community. I'll get in trouble if I don't say proudly financed by First National. Absolutely. Yeah. We're delighted with that. <laughs> yeah. And what else? What is there? Are there large projects on the horizon? There's some interesting projects that you've kind of got coming that you'd like to talk about. Well, as Dean Connor mentioned this morning, we have the biggest development pipeline in Canada that mm. I guess we've ever had in my 23 years here. It's over five billion. We have about two billion under construction now in various stages. We have another billion and a half to two in entitlement, and then the balance coming along thereafter. It's largely multi-res. We like urban multi-res. You know, provided you get the land at the right price and the construction costs make sense. We like that asset class a great deal. We are also doing some high-rise office selectively. We have Bentall 6 underway in Vancouver. It's 48% pre-lease now. So that's adjacent to a complex that we started developing decades ago. And, you know, we're very confident in that location as the pre-leasing has demonstrated. We've got quite a bit of industrial on the go. Some of it traditional big cube distribution, others more last mile fulfillment centers for e-commerce. And industrial obviously is a tremendous asset class. Are you looking at any of these sort of quote-unquote alternative assets that we're seeing kind of become more favorable these days, be it storage, hotel, senior housing, that kind of thing? We do a great deal in the medical office building space in the U.S. That's been a very successful asset class for us. It's a little bit different business in the U.S. because you've got the U.S. healthcare systems who are the tenants and they would often take 50% with a very long-term lease and then you backfill it with medical practices that feed off that hospital system. I've been on the board of both hotel and seniors living businesses and those are as you know very much operating businesses so we dabble a little bit in that but usually where we have a very strong operator with a long-term lease and we're not taking the operating risk ourselves. We are looking very seriously at the student housing business and we think there's opportunities there. Any specific locations or kind of just in general still? In general at this point, right. yeah. So as the CEO, I'm sure you spent a lot of time on the transaction and deal side, but you probably spent a bunch of time on governance and culture. Maybe just talk about how you are trying to create culture within Bentall BOG, if we, if we can, right? BGO, BGO sorry, <laughs> BGO. And just kind of what your strategy is for attracting a talent and maintaining that culture. It's so important these days, right? With the tech companies and things like that, that you know, having the right people in place are just so challenging to find and so hard to keep. Yeah, you know, I think it's, I'm glad you asked. I think it's one of the most important parts of the business and one that we can sometimes overlook. I remember when I was first interviewed for the Bentall job 20 odd years ago, Mark Shaparsky said to me, I, I think we have a tremendous opportunity in the industry because everybody gets distracted with bright, shiny buildings, cost of capital. They forget quickly that it's people that manage those buildings, lease those buildings, finance them. And there's a real opportunity to be an employer, maybe not the employer, but an employer of choice in the markets that we operate in if we really take it seriously. And some of that, of course, is compensating your people well and making sure you've got incentives in place that reward them for the contributions they make and 
you know, not everybody gets the same amount, but you recognize that some work that much harder and you compensate them accordingly. So I think that's important, but I think that's kind of necessary, but not sufficient. I think there's a lot of other things that make a difference. Investing in career development, leadership development and training, ESG. ESG has become such an important topic. It's something we're very proud of for the ninth year in a row. We've ranked in the top three globally by the GRESB, the Maastricht-based system that ranks environmental social governance performance by public and private real estate companies. I think they have 3.5 trillion of participants in that now. And we've been in the top three globally in our category for large capital. Is that something you think your clients are focused on? Absolutely. I mean, this is such a tough thing to align, but is there a premium that you will achieve because of that? Because you can say we've been in the top three for a number of years? Well, I mean, I know for a fact that we have a couple of very large European investors who have a dedicated ESG person on their investment committee, and they will not make an investment in a fund or in a large project unless that person has a veto, unless that person signs off on the credentials of the manager or the project. There's even availability of capital to a certain extent. Right. So that just wouldn't have come our way if we didn't have these kind of Credentials, yeah. Credentials, but I guess more than anything, if they didn't see us living the talk, because they operationally audit us every year, they want to know that it's more than just a tagline. But the other really fascinating thing goes to employee engagement and innovation. And I will tell you that we got into ESG because of climate change and because of the obvious reasons why we thought it was important for our communities at home and across the planet. But what we didn't fully anticipate is how important it was for our teams, to see the corporation reflecting their own values. And this is not only for millennials, it's particularly important for millennials, but it's for people of all ages. You know, the person working, the 55-year-old guy repairing the air conditioning in the building, he cares about the planet. He's got kids or grandkids, he cares just as much. And it's something where the very best ideas emanate throughout the company and flow up it's not where... They're you, not all your ideas? No, nah, <laughs> not, not at all. In fact, I struggle to keep up with them. But to be frank, it's not something where you can dictate what we should be doing. It's where people that have the on-the-ground experience see opportunities to capture and recycle rainwater for landscaping irrigation, to dramatically improve recycling and reduce what goes to landfill, to you know, relamp easy things like relamping incandescent to LED, that sort of thing. But... The other part of it is once they see you walking that talk and being a leader, they're proud to come to work or they will refer you to their friends. And our employee engagement scores correlate 97%. The the question, you know, what's your employee satisfaction? Does the company reflect your personal values? So that's huge. And then the second thing that I really didn't anticipate is how it becomes a catalyst for innovation more broadly. You know, if you say to somebody, let's sit down and think about how we can improve the financial forecasting or budgeting system, that's drudgery. You don't get a lot of hands that say, yeah, I'll stay late and do that. But if you say to people, how can we be more environmentally responsible? Everybody in the room puts their hand up. They're keen. And before you know it, they're not coming to work and saying, this is the way we've always done it. They're coming to work and they're saying, there's a better way to do this. And it weeds out the people that don't think that way or want to think that way. And it empowers the people that do. And before you know it, you're not just talking about innovative approaches in ESG, you're talking about different asset classes, different way to underwrite, how do we attract more tech tenants, it becomes innovation writ large. So I think it's just a wonderful catalyst 
for engagement and for innovation. As you mentioned, Atuba, walking the talk, we've discussed you know, ESG on this, on this podcast before, and there has been a, a shift, you know, that I can speak anecdotally anyway, where people are actually walking in the talk, whereas three or four years ago, it was a lot of notional stuff, a lot of commitments to an ideal, but it's the nuts and bolts of actually is, making it, the changes that are amazing. It is interesting because Adam and I are kind of in a unique position. You know, we sit here and we interview people like yourselves. We have been doing so for a number of years. And so we get to see some trends that are kind of bubbling up. And so three years ago, we ended doing people in sort of your type of role. ESG was never something that they wanted to talk about. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's like, we need to talk about this. I think that just speaks to the whole community at large is starting to pick this up and having the same conversations that you're having now saying, this is something that's important. We can't just put a policy down and say, look, we have ESG conformity. We actually have to do it in order to attract the right talent. That's stuffed and, in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, it's not, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Right. It's really fascinating. Well, and it's something that we can do together. You know, we don't have to compete with each other yeah. to do this. And quite frankly, the impact of the industry doing it together will be infinitely greater than one company or two companies. And RealPAC's done a very nice job in kind of reminding people the importance of us and then facilitating that coming yeah, together. Well, Michael Brooks was on here about, I don't know, six months ago. And that was the entire podcast was just about how he's really trying to move the ESG sort of mentality within the entire industry. Absolutely. Well, well it's, it's amazing too, because you mentioned it was part of the capital raise. It's a requirement. People in the past have talked about what's the business case for anything green. So, well, there's a pretty solid business case that you're going to have trouble raising capital. It's, you know, and that, that will change behavior. Let me give you a really good example. We finished developing an office building on spec, which we don't do that often, in 2008 in Salt Lake City. And it was best in class office building in Salt Lake City. At the time, San Francisco and other areas were becoming expensive. So you saw more tech talent moving to Salt Lake. That trend we're beginning to see reemerge now quite strongly. But the financial crisis hit, building was empty, no tenants, and, and we were looking at something that could be kind of ugly, frankly. It wasn't going to be life-threatening because it was a small part of our fund, but nonetheless, it wasn't performing well. Along came Goldman Sachs, who decided they wanted to move a big chunk of their back office from New York to Salt Lake. Very well-educated, much less expensive, reliable workforce. And, you know, as you may recall, Goldman Sachs' corporate reputation in 2000. Eight, nine, ten was, was <laughs> not what it, that good. Yeah. Was it? yeah. So what did they want? They wanted a lead gold building. They wanted to be able to put on their reports that they had just leased this space, that it was lead gold, only building in Salt Lake City at the time that was. They took the whole building. So, you know, there was a couple of percent premium in building a lead gold building, but it saved our bacon, turned out to be a terrific investment after all. And I think we <laughs> Hopefully, be leased up by now if, if we hadn't done that, but it would have taken much, much longer. Right, interesting. It was on the topic of maintaining a culture that you're proud of, you know, not just your capital raise, your partners as well that you operate with. Do they see value in what you've created? Yeah, I think of it as two sorts of partners. One is our clients who are very much partners. I mean, quite literally, because we invest in almost all the funds in a meaningful way. So they're an important partner. And then, of course, our executive team and the broader team that works with us. Starting with the partners, I mean, one of the things that became very clear, and we knew this because we had done five or six combinations before we decided to do something with Green Oak, is that they didn't want the things that they liked about us to change. So you made a question earlier about suddenly changing your investment style. We're not taking people that have grown up investing in value added and suddenly asking them to invest in core or vice versa. They've developed skills in those respective areas 
very important that they continue to do what they do so well. Sun Life understood that. And from the very beginning, when we first started talking to them about the Bentall Kennedy transaction in 2015, they committed to a light touch. So, you know, we're the subsidiary of a public company. Things like compliance and legal and risk have to be done properly at an elevated standard, frankly. But there's never been any discussion or any attempt whatsoever to get involved with investment policy, investment decisions. We manage a very large general account for Sun Life, which is their own balance sheet, investing in real estate and mortgages. And there, of course, they set the policy, the investment policy, and they have a big voice in approvals and things. But wherever we're involved with third-party clients, it's managed the way it always has been without any Sun Life involvement or, frankly, even participation in those third-party accounts. The other thing that was very important to our team you know, the other important partner was that we would maintain uh, reasonable operating independence. So as part of the Bentall Green Oak transaction, we did spend a lot of time talking through what kinds of decisions Sonny Kelsey and I would have the freedom to make on our own as the top executives within the company. Things like compensation, there was a predetermined envelope for compensation. And by and large, we have discretion to allocate that. We didn't have to go to Sun Life Corporate HR, for example, for that. And a number of other things where we had operating independence. Sure, if we were going to acquire a new entity, start a new business in a new country, or deploy the Sun Life balance sheet, then, of course, they've got an approval right on that. And, you know, a big part of the transaction was their increased commitment to provide us with seed or GP capital so that with every new fund that we launch, we, they make a very meaningful investment. And we have over $600 million invested in Sun Life seed capital in our existing funds and another couple hundred million that will be deployed, which really does create a true partnership with our investor clients because we've got 5, 10, 15% of the capital in a fund. They're the balance, but they know that we're focused on exactly the same yeah. things they are. Of course, well, you're taking a loss too, or you've got skin in the game, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Serious skin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Gary's got some responsibilities today. He is the co-chair of the forum, along with actually Maury Taz, the founder of First National. So we don't want to keep it too much longer because I'm sure you have a lot of responsibilities that go along with chairing this giant event. So thanks so much for coming in today. It's uh, much appreciated having you here. My pleasure, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. And we want to thank First National for sponsoring the podcast. And we want to thank Informa for having us here at the Canadian Real Estate Forum. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.